Hello everyone. Right at the beginning of February this year, a groundbreaking piece of research hit the news headlines. Researchers from the National Institute for Physiological Sciences in Japan were able to grow functional mouse kidneys inside rats from just a few donor stem cells. This has huge implications for human organ transplantation. The issue of organ transplants and donation is one that I debate numerous times with the students that I teach. For patients who sadly suffer from end-stage renal disease, so renal referring to kidneys, a kidney transplant is the only hope for regaining quality of life. End-stage renal disease, or ESRD, is the last stage, and there's, there's about five in total, of what we call chronic kidney disease, or CKD for short. This means that kidneys are only functioning at about 10 to 15% of their normal capacity. Across the UK, more than 1,000 people each year donate a kidney while they're still alive to a relative, friend or someone unknown to them. In fact, it's the most commonly donated organ by a living person. Sadly though, there's a mass shortage of donor kidneys out there. Now, in other podcasts that I've made, I refer to something called a blastocyst. It's essentially a ball of cells formed after about four or five divisions of a zygote or a fertilised egg cell. The innermost part, the bit that we call the inner cell uh, mass, will ultimately form the embryo and the outer region is what gives rise to the placenta. Now, researchers in Japan have been working on a technique called blastocyst complementation as a way of growing organs outside of a body. Blastocysts are taken from mutant animals that might be missing specific organs and they inject them with stem cells from a completely normal donor, not necessarily of the same species. Now, those stem cells then differentiate to form an entire missing organ organ rather in the animal. Now, what's incredible is that the new organ retains the characteristics of the original stem cell donor and so can potentially be used in transplantation therapy. The lead researcher, uh, Tepi Goto, whose work is soon to be published in the journal uh, Nature Communications, was quoted as saying, Initial attempts to grow rat kidneys in mice proved unsuccessful as rat stem cells did not readily differentiate into the two main types of cells needed for kidney formation. However, when the reverse scenario was attempted, we found that mouse stem cells efficiently differentiated inside rat blastocysts, forming the basic structures of a kidney. Now, personally, I'm I'm always amazed at just how far we try to push the boundaries, and this study is a prime example of that. Obviously, there's more work to be done and more data to collect, more data we need to peer review. But this genuinely looks like a viable method of kidney generation. And in a time of organ shortage, it's a promising development. There are currently around 6,000 people on the UK transplant waiting list. Last year, according to the NHS website, over 400 people died while waiting for one. 
So let's talk about what the kidneys actually do in the body. I think most people associate kidneys with urine production through controlling water levels, and, and they'd be right, but that's just a small snapshot of what we need them for. They help to control the level of salts in the blood, allowing us to balance our electrolyte levels. They're involved in the reabsorption of glucose and amino acids. And they're even involved in the production of certain hormones. Ultimately, fully functioning kidneys clean the blood of waste and excess fluid. So what do the kidneys actually look like? I'm sure you're familiar with the, the general shape, but what if we delve deeper into the gross anatomy and then look a little closer at the microscopic kind of anatomy, sort of microscopic level? Well, the outer portion of the kidney is what we call the cortex. Here you find the Bowman's or renal capsules, the convoluted tubules and blood vessels. Now I'll explain the significance of all of these in just a moment. The, the inner region, the innermost region of the kidney is what we call the medulla or the medullary pyramids. If we go off their general pyramid-like uh, kind of structure or shape. Here in the medulla we find the loop of Henle, collecting ducts and again a rich network of blood vessels. Now on the surface, kidneys may seem like really simple anatomical structures, but a well-defined process takes place inside of them. One that helps to keep our body completely in check. It's all part of what we call homeostasis, which is the maintenance of a constant internal environment. Tubular structures in each kidney form the basic I guess because they're structural and functional units, and we call these units the nephrons. So you might be familiar with the term nephritis, which is basically inflammation of the tissues in the kidney. It's not an uncommon condition. To really appreciate their role in the body and why people with renal disease so desperately need a functioning pair, let's consider what is happening in all of these key structures. So the first stage is called ultrafiltration. And that's where we form something called the glomerular filtrate. Now imagine this. Imagine you've got a big sieve, the kind that you use for like pasta. Now in that sieve, imagine there's a vast amount of spaghetti sitting there. And you decide to tweeze just one piece of spaghetti over the side of the sieve. Okay, so there you go. So the sieve is the part that we call the Bowman's capsule. So the Bowman's capsule, the renal capsule, that's the sieve. And the pile of spaghetti in it that's what we call the glomerulus. The glomerulus is this big branched knot of just capillaries stemming from an arteriole. Technically, it's the afferent arteriole, or that one thread of spaghetti that I said was dangling from the side. The renal artery, so the big artery that supplies the kidneys with blood, branches into millions of little arterioles and each one of those enters the nephron as the afferent arteriole. So you've got the afferent arteriole, this one tube branching into this big ball of capillaries. That we call the glomerulus, and the glomerulus, in my analogy, is, is like this big ball of spaghetti sitting inside a sieve. So the glomerulus sits within this cup-shaped, well, I guess you could say it's cup-shaped structure, at the start of the nephron the Bowman's or renal capsule. As your blood flows through this knot or through this ball of capillaries, fluid gets forced out of them, into the capsule and through little tiny holes or pores in them, very much like the holes in the sieve. 
the fluid that's forced out or filtrate to give it its proper name is pushed through little small gaps pores in the capillary endothelial lining so the little lining of the capillaries by ultrafiltration that's what we mean by ultrafiltration it then passes through uh, a basement membrane which basically acts like another filter and then through small gaps between specialised cells that line the Bowman's capsule called podocytes. The filtrate passes beneath and between these podocyte branches. So if you now imagine just a big tube sitting underneath the sieve holding the spaghetti. That's what our nephron looks like. So you've got this big sieve with the ball inside. Now imagine this big tube coming from there. It's through that tube that all the fluid that I'm talking about passes down. The second key stage in uh, in this, uh, I guess, kidney story is what we call selective reabsorption, or more specifically, selective reabsorption of glucose and water. Now, this is where the story gets rather technical. And if, if you wanted to hear about the kind of finer detail here, then I'd recommend have a listen to my YouTube tutorial about kidneys on my channel uh, on YouTube, Mr. I Explains. In a nutshell, approximately 85% of useful filtrate is reabsorbed back into the blood in the proximal convoluted tubule. That's the proper name for this big tube that I'm referring to under the sieve. Proximal just means close to the centre of the body and convoluted means, as, as you can imagine, just twisted, folded, coiled up. So this tube sitting underneath our sieve, if you like, is just this big folded tube. And that's what we call the proximal convoluted tubule. Let's for a moment think about the cells, the epithelial cells that would line this tubule. So the cells that make up the inner lining of this tube. What we'd actually see are cells covered in microvilli, small finger-like projections designed to increase their surface area. And that will help with the absorption of substances we'd see that they have these infoldings at their bases and are in close proximity to capillaries. And in the cell, in the cell themselves, we'd find lots of mitochondria. These are organelles or little structures within the cells that, where energy is released. So that would suggest that something happening in this proximal conv convoluted tubule needs some energy. If the cells that line this tube are full of mitochondria, and mitochondria are where we release the energy from in aerobic respiration, that would tell me that something happening in that tube requires energy. Now, 85% of all the water gets reabsorbed from the kidneys here. 100% of the glucose, or the glucose sugar rather, gets reabsorbed here, along with ions like chloride and amino acids, following uh, protein breakdown or hydrolysis. But what would glucose in the urine be a sign of so if we didn't take back all 100%? Well, the answer is diabetes. So kidneys play a crucial role in taking back all the glucose, any that has managed to pass through the glomerulus and into that filtrate. One of the largest structures in the nephron is the loop of Henle. And as I've mentioned earlier, it's found in the innermost part of the kidney, the medulla. The loop of Henle is like one giant U-bend. It sounds a little odd, but along the length of this loop, the kidneys help to maintain a gradient, sort of like a difference, if you like, of sodium ions. 
And in doing so, they control the level of water that gets reabsorbed back into the bloodstream. It's here where we're really able to concentrate the urine that we produce. Now, the final part to this story involves the reabsorption of water by the distal convoluted tubule and collecting ducts. The cells making up the distal convoluted tubule aligned with microvilli, as you might guess, and the mitochondria again. And that allows them to reabsorb material actively, so using the energy as opposed to passively, so actively pulling the material and reabsorbing it back from the filtrate into the blood by active transport. Under the influence of various hormones, the permeability of these tubes that I'm talking about, the distal convoluted tubule and collecting duct, is altered to make the final adjustment to the water and the salt level. And in doing so, it's able to control blood pH. Now think of this basic principle. If you want someone to lose any excess water that they have, you'd give them a diuretic. It encourages them to urinate and lose it. If you don't want them to lose any water that they've got, and you'd rather they conserve what little amount they have, then don't give them a diuretic. Simple. So I refer to the idea of homeostasis in this podcast. Homeostatic control of osmoregulation. So that's basically regulation of water levels in the blood is achieved by a hormone. It's a hormone called ADH or antidiuretic hormone. And it acts, so it works on the distal convoluted tubule and collecting duct. So if we want to conserve water, our bodies, or more specifically, the pituitary gland that produces this hormone, will encourage the reuptake of water from the collecting duct. Special proteins called aquaporins get embedded into the cell surface membrane of the cells that line these ducts. And what it means is that more water is able to once again pass back into the blood circulation. So it gets out of the collecting duct into the blood again. Now, as you can figure, if we didn't want to conserve water, perhaps we've drunk we've drunk too much and we could do with losing a little bit, then ADH, antidiuretic hormone, wouldn't be made. And that extra water, if you like, would just be lost in the urine. It would come out down the collecting duct towards the blood and would lose it in the urine. So hopefully you can now appreciate the vital role that the kidneys play. And you never know, maybe one day soon, the idea of a made-to-order kidney won't seem such a strange concept. If news reports are to be believed, then we're not far off at all. The topic of transplants I find fascinating, personally. And so in future podcasts, I'll delve a little deeper into the issues surrounding them, particularly the news that in 2020, a new opt-out organ donation system will be introduced. But for now, thank you all for listening.